the following message was given by Robert Green on Sunday, January 29th at Redemption Hill Church. For more information about the church, visit us online at www.redemptionhill.org. You get your Bible, go ahead and make your way to Psalm 119. And let me just start this way. I, this is going to be the first of what might be many uncomfortable things I might say this morning. So... Let's start with the easiest of discomforts, right? Um, so when I, when I encourage you to grab your Bible, open it up to Psalm 119 or, or use one that's in front of you, I'm encouraging you uh, in a very analog way of engaging with God and His Word by opening up the actual Bible in front of you. And we do that specifically because uh, it's been increasingly common, and it's okay. It's, I mean, it's not judgment. It's okay that... We know many of you like to engage with God and His Word on your phone or on your iPad. It's an amazing instrument of technology for that. However, if you are anything like me, I can be on that iPad and on that phone reading and immediately go, what time is the kickoff for the Bengals game today? And I'm over at ESPN, right? It's easy to sit there and, and, and engage and be like, oh, I haven't checked that notification that keeps coming up and, and scrolling. And so the encouragement is to move towards a little more analog moment when we're together. And, and if for any reason you just, you want to continue in here to use your phone or your iPad, that's great. You know, we're going to be legalistic about it. Uh, comfortably, I'll just ask that you put it on airplane mode for yourself. Like, I've gotten used to noises. Like, I mean, there's all kinds of noises when you're speaking. You get really used to them over the years, and you can work through them. So it's not like your phone ringing or pinging or whatever. It's for you. So that you don't find yourself, like I find myself, you know, 10 minutes into scores and statistics. I'm like, what did he just say? I, I missed that whole thing, you know? So grab your Bible. Make your way to Psalm 119. Swipe your phone into airplane mode if you need to. And we're going to join the psalmist in verses 65 through 72 this morning. I'm going to read them, and then we're going to pray. That's just the first of discomfort. Hopefully it was easy, right? The psalmist says this morning, You, Lord, have dealt well with your servant according to your word. Teach me good judgment and knowledge, for I believe in your commandments. Before I was afflicted, I went astray. But now I keep your word. You are good and do good. Teach me your statutes. The insolent smear me with lies, but with my whole heart I keep your precepts. Their heart is unfeeling like fat, but I delight in your law. It is good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. The law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of gold and silver pieces. Bless you. Let me pray for us this morning. Father, we thank you again for the privilege of being gathered together this morning by your kindness. And we ask this morning that you do that which only you can do, the work of your spirit amongst us this morning. Help us to hear your voice in your word. Help us to see your loving kindness to us. We ask this morning that you would do that in Jesus' good name. Amen. 
The name John Bunyan is probably familiar to a lot of you. Uh, for those of you for whom it's not familiar, he was a pastor who authored numerous books. The, the most famous that you probably are familiar with is The Pilgrim's Progress. What you may know or may not know is also that Bunyan was imprisoned for 12 years for being a pastor, for preaching the gospel. All he had to do to get out of his prison term was conform to the requests that were given to him to stop preaching, and he would be free to go. Twelve years he remained in prison. He would write of that experience in numerous places, and he would speak of how it would wreck his heart and wreck his soul, not just going through what he was going through physically in prison, but compounded by the reality that he was freely choosing it by not being willing to conform, and then compounded by what he knew it would do and the difficulty that it would come to his wife and his four kids because of it. Most on his heart in that, he would write, was his daughter Mary, who was only 10 when Bunyan was first imprisoned, and she was born blind. In his book, Grace According to the Chief of Sinners, Sinners, Bunyan wrote this, The parting with my wife and poor children hath often been to me in this place, prison, as the pulling of the flesh from my bones. Oh, the thoughts of the hardship my blind one might go under if I remain here or or die, he's talking about. The thought of it would break my heart to pieces. It's in that same book, Grace Abounding to the Chief of Sinners, that Bunyan, as he continues to reflect on this time in his life, would write this. I never had in all my life so great an inlet into the word of God as now in prison. The scriptures that I saw nothing in before are made in this place to shine upon me. Jesus Christ also was never more real and apparent than now. Here I have seen him and felt him indeed. I have seen such things here that I am persuaded I shall never, while in this world, be able to express. Being very tender of me, God hath not suffered me to be abused, but would with one scripture and another strengthen me against all, in so much that I have often said, were it lawful, I could pray for greater trouble, for greater comfort's sake. As I thought like a human about what Bunyan was writing, I was astounded by his language. So great an inlet into the word of God is now. The scriptures in in which I saw nothing in before are made now in this place to shine upon me. Jesus was also never more real and apparent than now. Thought about what Bunyan was saying. I couldn't help but, but say in my own heart, I want in on that, right? 
I want the inlet into my soul that leaves God's word in ways that's bright and shiny and radiant upon me. The real Jesus with me right now in real and present ways that I've never before known. I want that. I mean, if we're honest, who in here doesn't want that, right? And as I I thought about it, and I I thought about what Bunyan was saying, I I had to realize that while I, I, I want and crave the inlet that Bunyan's talking about and the nearness to Jesus that he's testifying to, I I don't want the means by which Bunyan and the psalmist came to such point of expression that we read this morning. I want the radiance of the scriptures like an inlet into my soul and the nearness of Jesus like I've never felt before. I just don't want the affliction. I just don't want the trouble. I just don't want the humbling. I just don't want the trials. Those are the ways that that word is translated throughout the Bible. Affliction, trial, hardship, humbling. Yes and amen on the inlet to the brilliance of scriptures lighting up my heart in the nearness of Jesus, but I'm honest, no, no thank you to the affliction. Yet the, the testimony of scripture over and over has been put so well by Paul Tripp. And the story goes that God will sometimes take you where you don't want to go to work in you what you never could have worked on your own. It's the kindness, Tripp would say, of God's uncomfortable grace. In fact, it's this reality that captivated Martin Luther, another great reformer. Luther would write and say that there are three main instruments in the hand of God that would make someone alive to God's word. And in Luther's word, would, would make you a, a, a theologian, make you one that knew and treasured and delighted in God's word. There were, there were three instruments. The first, Luther said, was meditatio. You can guess where we're going with that, where Luther's going. It's meditation. It's the habit of sitting with the words and the phrases and the statements of Scripture, so much so rolling them over in your mind and your heart and by the Spirit's influence and illumination, and then becoming new and alive to you in your heart. Meditatio. The second Luther said was oratio. Taking the fruit of those meditations and the electricity that the Spirit has borne in your heart through God's word as you've sat with it and turning it into prayer. Speaking to God out of what has become alive in your heart. Meditatio and oratio. The third and what Luther will call the touchstone of the instruments is tentatio. Translated trials. Affliction. Difficulty, humbling, hardships. Luther said this is the touchstone instrument. It teaches you not only to know and understand, but also to experience how right and how true and how sweet and how lovely, how mighty and how comforting God's word is. It, Luther said, is wisdom supreme. I want wisdom supreme. 
an inlet into the word of God such that it's radiant in my heart, that Jesus is nearer to me than I could ever imagine. But oratio, meditatio, yes. Affliction, humbling, trials. No, thank you. Yet the reality of it is, affliction is part of life in a fallen world. And it is an instrument of God's refining and merciful grace. The affliction in our hearts, if we're going to be honest with it, though, it, it triggers a, a lot of responses in us, a cascade of reactions to it. Now, I couldn't go through all of them. I just thought of my own life and, and thought about how times of affliction have triggered the reaction of me, turning me into what I would call a pretender, right? It's really not that bad. It really doesn't hurt that bad. It, it didn't really go that poorly. It's not really that difficult. It's a, it's a quick hardening off, almost like a turtle. Like I could shell this whole thing around me, and it's, it's not that bad. Anything that I could tell myself to keep myself from ha- having to deal with or, or feel or experience that, again, pretending. Like I'm just a realist. Right? That's what I tell myself. I'm just a realist. That's just the way it is. Yet this reaction and instinct is... It's utterly, I, I've grown to understand, tremendously dehumanizing because Jesus, the most human one to ever walk on the face of the earth, is the one who entered into the affliction and the sorrow in order to love. But difficulty, humbling, trials, affliction, it, it brings in me this, this response as, as well. It, 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 sometimes, if I look at my own life, it, it brings this response of escape. I become escape artist. I'm probably better at this than anything else. It's been masterful for me in 47 years to figure out how to go somewhere that I think is going to be a refuge for me in it. Anything to distract me from it. Anything to numb me to it, right? Before I know it, I'm I'm on ESPN for three and a half hours, right? I can tell you everything about everything. Anything I can go to just distract me from what I might be feeling, what I might be experiencing, what might be comfortable and easy. Just give me that and I can escape the reality of whatever the affliction or the difficulty might be, the humbling reality of life. There's also what I would call the wishful thinker. And this is the one who who might face the difficulty, the trial, the temptation, the affliction in life and, and and pepper back at it verse after verse after verse, but a, a deeper autopsy on that process and that heart might reveal one who has in mind a God whom those verses are going to that is simply one who would change the reality of what they're going through in order to give them what they really want. It might be a God of our own making in our own minds. All of them are reactions to affliction. And all of them leave us absorbed in the world of our own experiences, our own feelings, our own opinions. And when we're left there, it's very easy to become preoccupied with ourselves. It was the early church in, in the days of Luther and the reformers who would see this reality in the lives of God's people. And they would use a phrase to talk about it. It is the Latin phrase, curvitas in se means curved inward. 
our reactions leave us curved back in on ourselves, towards ourselves, and away from the true God. So one church historian writing about this phraseology in the life of the early church, he, he would say without even noticing it, what they're talking about is when the real God becomes irrelevant to our present difficulty. He just becomes a vague afterthought, weightless and distant in comparison to something immediately more pressing to us. Look, I've seen them all in myself. More than I would ever want to actually have to admit. And as I've been confronted with those realities again, as we've been studying Psalm 119, I've been getting ready for this week, I've become all the more eager to listen to and learn from the psalmist this morning. Because he's speaking to us as one who has an experience in something. One who's gone through something and has come out on the other side. And that's who I want to listen to. That's who I want to learn from. I was thinking about it this way. Like, if my car was to break down, and I just picked it up from the shop just the other day, and if it was to break down again, would I prefer to go find a mechanic who has read a few books about engines and cars and then opened up a shop, or would I prefer to go to a mechanic who has spent decades under the hood of different vehicles? whose fingers and hands are, are calloused, who's probably still got grease, seems to not want to come out from underneath the nails, who by experience, not just by a book, not just through theoretical knowledge, but by experience, knows the difference between a water pump and a fuel pump, right? That's who I want to take my car to. And that's what we get this morning from the psalmist in this stanza. God and his word and his ways through life and experience have moved way beyond the point of being theoretical for him. And this morning, this stanza, these verses are an invitation for us to listen, to learn, that we might have life. Psalm 119, verses 65 through 72. It's what is often called the good stanza. A good stanza. Not because the other stanzas in the psalm are bad. But remember, it's an acrostic, if you've been with us, right? The entire psalm is an acrostic. Each stanza right there represents a different letter of the Hebrew alphabet. The first verse, the first letter of each verse in each stanza corresponds to that letter of the Hebrew alphabet. Well, in this stanza, it follows the rules of the acrostic. The first word of each verse begins with the same Hebrew letter. Except in this stanza, five of those verses begin not just with the same letter, but the same word. You know what the word is? I've already told you. Good. Five times in eight verses. Good. 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 The writers of Scripture are repetitive. It's because they're trying to emphasize something. Something really good is being emphasized here. What's the good the psalmist wants us to see, right? It's not like he couldn't come up with another word that started with that letter. So he just kept saying good, um, good, um, good. No, all of these goods are connected. They're not random. They're all intentional and they're all connected. And there is a good 
But the psalmist wants us to see as he builds this story in the stanza. He has a good in mind that he wants us to rest in. So, you've got it open. Let's take a look. Verse 65 starts out by giving us, in a sense, a a summary statement of what the rest of the stanza is going to unpack. The rest of the stanza is kind of the story and the argument for how he comes to summarize it in verse 65. So he starts with the summary first. Literally, it says this, good, you have dealt with your servant. That's how it starts. Good, you have dealt with your servant. We translate it, you have dealt well with your servant, O Lord, according to your word. So here's what he's saying. He's like, I want you to know that God has dealt well with me. Every way that he's dealt well with me has been good. And it's been in accordance with his faithfulness. It's been in accordance with his promises. It's been in accordance with everything he's revealed about himself to us in his word. He's been good to me. Faithful. Now the psalmist is going to help us see what got him there. What's the story behind the statement? Verse 66, it begins this way. Good understanding, teach me. That's the Hebrew. We translate it, teach me good judgment and knowledge, for I believe in your commandments. Right? We, we've seen this prayer before. Right? This is what's behind the desire and the heart that the psalmist has. He wants God to teach him good understanding, good discernment, good wisdom. Like, like there aren't chapter and verse for the thousands of decisions we have to make in everyday life. But he wants God to give him such discernment that when he comes to decisions like that, the steps that he takes are in accordance and reflection with what God has revealed. He knows that he's going to not be able to pin a verse to everything he has to decide. All the steps he has to take. So he wants a discernment in those steps that only comes from God. We've we've talked about this already. This is what he's wanted, right? I loved as I was rethinking about it this week. George Horn was a 19th century pastor. And he was talking about this understanding and described it as the faculty of distinguishing and judging rightly of things moral and spiritual. Just as the palate, your mouth between meats. There are different flavors and qualities. Baby, you're not a meat eater. Let's say cheeses, right? Everybody loves cheese. Without this taste, he says, we can easily mistake falsehood for truth. Without this taste, we can easily mistake wrong for right. Without this taste, we can easily mistake superstition and enthusiasm for religion and licentiousness for freedom or liberty. So the psalmist is saying, this is what I've wanted. And we've seen him request this. And he does eight times throughout the psalm. This is what his heart desired, right? So teach me. Teach me, God, this discernment. Give me this discernment. Now, who knows how he thought God would do that, right? I, 
I don't know as he desired this from the Lord and requested this of God, this was the posture of his heart, let's say. I don't know that he had in mind a way that he thought God would answer that prayer. But it probably wasn't the way God did it. This is what the rest of the story helps us to see. As the saints of old used to say, the, the psalmist is going to enter into God's school of uncomfortable grace. Verse 67, before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. Verse 71, it's good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. The psalmist, remember, he's looking back. He's on this side of an experience and a time in his life. And he's looking back and and testifying to God's people what he now understands as he's gone through this. Before I was afflicted, troubled, humbled, whatever the difficulty was. That's one of the things I love about Psalm 119 as a sidebar. The fact that we don't know who really wrote it means we can't tag it to a very particular instance. We just have to listen to it like a human and consider what he's actually saying. Before I was afflicted, I went astray. Same word from Isaiah 53, 6, talking about sheep that go their own way. That's what it's saying. Before the affliction came, I was going my own way. I was doing my own thing. And and the presumption that comes in understanding the psalm is is one that gives the, the framework through what he's talking about of going... I was going my own way because things were going well. Things were going well for me. Right? You could imagine that things at his job were going well. Things at his family were probably going well. His relationships were probably firing. Maybe he was a guy that had goals and checklists for the month and the quarter and the year. And he's just ticking boxes off right and left. Right? All the retirement accounts are getting topped off. Everything's going well. As a good Hebrew, as a good Israelite, right? He's making the sacrifices. He's praying the prayers. He's doing all the things that he's supposed to. But with hindsight, he looks at it and says, I was going astray. My heart was going down a different road. Everything looked great to me. Everyone could look at me and go, hey, things are going really well for you. I didn't realize that I was about to walk off a cliff, though. Before I was going astray, before I was afflicted, I I was going astray. But God, as we've already been reminded, he'll take you where you haven't intended to go in order to produce in you what you couldn't achieve on your own. Maybe, because we don't know exactly when this psalm was written, maybe in his mind we're the words of Jeremiah that God gave him to speak to Israel in Jeremiah twenty-two twenty-one, When God told Jeremiah to tell Israel, I spoke to you in your prosperity, but you wouldn't listen to me. Maybe the psalmist is remembering that and going, oh, I get that now. I get it. Everything was rolling. But I couldn't really hear you. I I get it now. 
In my affliction, you've got my full attention. You've got it right now. Because it's in these times and, and in this school that we learn things we'd otherwise not know. In God's wisdom and hands, this trouble, this humbling, this affliction can become a profound professor. I mean, just look, for instance, at what the psalmist says on the other side of the season. Before I was afflicted, I went astray. But now I keep your word. Now, having gone through this, now I can see that your word and your ways, they are the well-trodden path to life. Your word and your ways, the one who created me, who, who knows what I'm to be satisfied in, who wired me to be satisfied in you. You, the one who, who can lead me to the very life that you intended for me to have and to be created for. Your word and your ways. That's the path to life. Everything was rolling and going well, but I couldn't see. And I certainly was deaf, like Jeremiah said, to your voice when I was going this way. I was astray, doing my own thing. But now, through affliction, I've come to see that your ways, your ways are life. It's good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. Now again, remember, this isn't learn like I didn't know that one was listed there. This is learn as in understand. Same root word for what he asked for in verse 66, that understanding. This is how God is answering that prayer. This is how God is answering that desire of his heart for discernment, for understanding, for wisdom in those thousands of decisions that there isn't a chapter in a verse for, but they'll reflect the heart of God. Here's how he answers it, through affliction. And now, having gone through this, I, boy, it was good that I was afflicted because I now learn and I have greater understanding of your statutes. Right, right. Just begin to put the story together. The good way that God has dealt with him in verse 65. Right? His testifying that God has dealt well with him. Good, you have dealt with me. The good way that God has dealt with him was through affliction. affliction. Trouble, hardship, humbling, whatever the circumstance it might have been. Because it's through that that his eyes have been opened anew to God's word. It's through that that there is a renewed delight in obedience in God's ways. It's through that that he now has a greater understanding and discernment. His eyes are, are, are open in a whole new way to reality. God's testimonies, his life in this world, his life in relation to God is being reframed anew for him. I imagine he, he sounds a bit like the psalmist in Psalm 73. Who have I in heaven but you? And besides you, I desire nothing on earth. My, my flesh and my heart may fail, but you are the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you will perish. Oh my goodness, what a greater taste he has of that. Before this, I was headed towards destruction. I was going my own way. 
I was satisfied in my, my own comfort and my own ease and the reality of the life that I was living. I had no idea I was about to walk off a cliff. But now, as for me, the nearness of God is my good, the psalmist says. You are my refuge. Right? If we had time to just work our way through the, the testimony of the entire biblical story, you'll see over and over again God's uncomfortable grace at work in the life of his saints. Chiefly, like even in the Psalms, there's a couple of examples. Even in the Psalms and in the end of the New Testament, you, you see the gracious, refining work in the heart and the life of his people through this affliction. And in fact, in Psalm 66, you can go read it this week, verse 10. The psalmist says, you have tried us, O God. You have refined us as silver is refined. I wonder if that verse was in Peter's mind when he was writing his letter to the church. We have it in the Bible in the New Testament as 1 Peter. But in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 6 through 9, Peter uses this metaphor to talk of the merciful, refining grace of God in the life of his people. He says that you and I, he uses the, the imagery and the metaphor of refinement. We're like metal ore. You know that when metal is taken out of the earth, it's in the format of an ore, meaning it's the metal plus all of the impurities and other elements that are mixed in with it. So to get that ring and that bracelet or that necklace or whatever it is you have, that ore has to be refined. Those impurities have to be removed. You see, if the impurities remain, the structural integrity, the strength of the metal, of the element is diminished and its beauty isn't seen. So you've got to refine it. Well, how do you refine it? You put that thing in a white hot furnace, so much so that it melts. And as it melts, the impurities that are mixed with it rise to the surface. Those get scraped away. And then as the heat is reduced and it's tempered, that metal, whatever the element might be, is strengthened. It's hardened. It's more lustrous and more beautiful. And the process happens over and over and over again until you're left with that element itself. Peter says, it's like you and I. We're like that ore. And in God's gracious, refining mercy, his uncomfortable grace to us works like that furnace. And in his mercy and love, he sweeps away progressively that dross, those impurities that rise up leaving the gold. The overflow increasingly of praise and love and glory in our life, in our heart, in our desires, and the revelation of Jesus. That's what Peter says. That's the gold. I want this discernment. I want this understanding. I want to live according to your ways in such a way that, that as I come to the crossroads of a situation and a decision, I don't have a chapter. I don't have a verse, but I want to decide in such a way that reflects in my life and around me your wisdom and your ways. Give me that discernment. God said, I can answer that prayer. And he does it for the psalmist through the school of his uncomfortable grace. Sounds a bit like Bunyan. Sounds a bit like the story we heard with him. Jesus becomes more clear and more real in the process. In, in, a, in a matter of time, we're, we're going to begin singing a song here, How Firm a Foundation, the church has sung for centuries. 
One of the verses goes like this, and we'll sing it together. When through fiery trials your pathway shall lie, by grace all sufficient shall be your supply. The flame shall not hurt you. I only design your dross to consume, your gold to refine. God will take you where you haven't intended to go in order to produce in you what you could not achieve on your own. He'll do, Tripp said, whatever he needs to do to produce holiness in you. So much so, he's willing to compromise your temporary happiness in order to increase your Christ-likeness. It's the school of his uncomfortable grace. But the story of Scripture goes on over and over and over again that it's in this school that you and I learn and experience a deeper communion with Jesus. I mean, just listen to the longing of the Apostle Paul. He writes to the church in Philippi and he says, this is what I want. This, this is what my heart desires. I want to know Jesus and the power of his resurrection, to share in his sufferings and to become like him even in his death. I want to know him, and it's through this affliction, it's through difficulty, it's through trials, it's through hardship, it's in this school of uncomfortable grace that we begin to fellowship more closely with Jesus. Like Bunyan said, he becomes more near to us, nearer to our hearts maybe than he's ever been before. And as he's more near to our hearts and we see him and we're being refined progressively into his image and likeness, we begin to see the world more like him. We begin to see reality through his eyes more clearly. The emptiness and the weightlessness of the present world and all of the pseudo-refuges it holds out. And we begin to see them increasingly more for what they are. It becomes increasingly harder, not impossible, increasingly harder, more today than yesterday, for us like Demas to fall in love with this present world, to go our own way, like the psalmist says. It leaves us with him more near and more dear and more clear and us longing for the day than what we have believed by faith to finally be the reality of our sight. The day of his return, it leaves us longing for the time when we finally get to see the glory of God in the face of Jesus at his return. And I'll be honest, I, most of my life, I, I grew up in the church. I was, time I was born really, section of my life as a teenager and young adult, I wasn't a part of the church very much. That was because of my sports schedule. But I grew up in the church. Um, and I would have to say that for the majority of my life, I've never really wanted Jesus to return. Like I read that, I read Paul. I get it. I feel like that's what I'm supposed to want. But the reality of it is my life was pretty good here. I didn't have a lot of difficulty as a kid. A lot of things came pretty easy to me. I did pretty well at different things that I would do. Um, life was good and I felt like I could have more. And in my heart, I, I, I didn't really want him to come back. 
And so it wasn't until, what's well, almost 16 years now, but 15 years ago, that I ever started to really want Jesus to return. And that was through the process of the death of our son. And I'll be honest, for the first little while, what I wanted was to see my son again. That's what I wanted. I knew that that was going to happen when Jesus returned. But what I wanted was to see him again. But it was through the process and through the affliction and through the hardship and through the humbling that I began to learn that there was something far exceeding even what I felt like would be the greatest joy of seeing him again. There was something far exceeding even that held out for me. And I began finally to want to see and be with Jesus. The one that I had learned through that affliction to grow nearer to, who became more real to me in those seasons and at that time than he had ever been in the 30 plus years before. All of a sudden, I began to sense what it was to want to be with him, to see his face. I began to understand what Paul was talking about when he would say, the pain of the hardship, the pain of the affliction now, it's not worth comparing at all to the joy that awaits then. And it's not just the joy of seeing my son again, but it's the joy now of being with Jesus. How firm a foundation will sing when through fiery trials your pathway shall lie. My grace all sufficient shall be your supply. The flame will not hurt you. I only design your dross to consume and your gold to refine. Through the rearview mirror, the psalmist sees that what God has produced in him through this affliction was greater gain than any of the pain, any of the heartache, any of the humbling that the affliction brought with it. Which is why he says in verse 68, good you are. Good you are. That's who you are, God. That's your essence. Good you are and good you do. You are good and do good. So keep teaching me. Keep teaching me. That is the good the psalmist wants you to see most clearly. Good you are and good you do. Because of that, even the affliction proved to be good. Why? Because deeper affection for and understanding and discernment of and obedience to God's word and ways has become more valuable to him than anything else. It was through this uncomfortable grace that the value proposition, the scales in his hearts, got rebalanced. All of a sudden, that which was of greatest satisfaction, greatest treasure, greatest joy was shifted. The law of your mouth, he says in verse 72, is better to me than thousands of gold and silver pieces. Literally, good to me, the law of your mouth. Priceless. Right? He's saying, you can, you can bring all the suitcases with all the cash, stack all the bills, all the Bitcoin, whatever it is you're into, stack it all up in front of me. 
I'd walk away from it all for the priceless treasure I've come to learn that you and your ways and your word are for me. Friends, this is an affection. This is a treasuring. This is a delight that can't be commanded. Never let one of us stand up here and say, you should feel this way. We can't command this. This is something that God refines in the heart of his children. And one of the means by which he goes about refining this kind of delight and joy in him and his ways is through the uncomfortable grace of affliction. He's not saying that the affliction is in some way now because of this hindsight less painful or that something that was sad or tragic is somehow now happy or that something that may have happened that was evil is somehow now good. That's not what he's saying. In fact, he's clear. Even even now, the tense of the language changes in verses 69 and 70. He says, the insolence smear me with lies. Right? He knows that even now, he's going to be lied about. He's going to face the difficulty of his reputation being ruined. People are going to see him differently. Things may happen to him because of it. It's okay. It's okay. Because I've learned to delight in your law. Because it's become, through what you've taken me through, the most precious thing to me. He's not saying wherever you are right now that you have to feel like he does He's helping you to see what God is up to in the midst of what you might be going through. He's not saying that if you had the chance, you you wouldn't change things if you could. But he's, he's looking back at his life like that seasoned mechanic. And he's testifying to us how good it can be for us to endure the affliction and uncomfortable grace of God because it's in that that we learn things about him and ourselves that we never would have known otherwise. That he really is good. And he does good. And that I'm not nearly as wise. Strong. As capable as I may have thought myself to be. Our loving Father will sometimes take us where we wouldn't take ourselves to produce in us what we couldn't produce on our own. And the psalmist is helping us to see that now it's through that I can really see that you and your ways are life. I mean, it's easy to think in moments of affliction and difficulty. I, I'm not trying to minimize it, and neither is the psalmist. It's easy and feel like in those moments that somehow God has forgotten you. Somehow God is is rejecting you. But it's the kindness of God and the reflection of the psalmist that helps us to see that more often than not, as his children, we're just, we're not being mindful of the uncomfortable, refining grace of God and making us more like his son. That sometimes it's not our comfort and ease that he's most intent on working for us. It's the image and reflection of his son that he's creating in us. John Bloom, you might be familiar with the name, you might not be. He's a writer. 
And in an article that he was writing about his story and his testimony and things that he had gone through in his life, he, he ended it this way, and this is how we'll end this morning. He said, if you really want to know, not factual reality, but if you really want to know the living and true God, really want to treasure his word, right? If there's that inlet of grace that makes his word radiant in your heart and, 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 and Christ ever more present and real and near to you than he's ever been before, right? Bloom says, if you really want a fibrous faith, I love that image, fibrous faith. If you really want freedom from addiction to empty and ephemeral or empty pleasure buzzes, all those places that we just try to distract ourselves and make ourselves comfortable, all the ease we wrap around ourselves, he says, what you need is a holy FOMO, a fear of missing out on the deep pleasures of God that exceeds your fear of the affliction, your fear of the uncomfortable grace. I'm here to tell you, he said, it's worth it. The psalmist is telling the truth, and then he quotes our stanza. It's good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. The law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of gold and silver pieces. So keep teaching me. You're worth it. Let me pray for us this morning, and we'll respond together to God's word. Heavenly Father, it's even a second time still. I know there's a discomfort in my heart to join the psalmist and say, teach me. I want discernment. I, I want the radiance of your word and your ways to captivate my heart. I, Jesus, I want you more near and more real to me than you've ever been before. Teach me and, and yet... I bristle at the potential of how you might answer that prayer in my life. Lord, rebalance the, the value scales in my heart. Lord, I want to treasure you and your ways, your paths and your word, thousands of pieces of gold and silver. The comfort that I love to wrap myself up in and tell myself I'm okay. Going my own way like the sheep. Deaf at times to your voice telling me I'm about to walk off a cliff. Rescue me. Teach me to love your ways and your word. Let them be more precious to our hearts than our present comforts. We ask that you would do this work by your spirit and Jesus' good name for his glory and our joy. Amen. You've been listening to a message by Robert Green given at Redemption Hill Church in Richmond, Virginia. For more information on the church and to hear other messages, please visit us online at www dot redemptionhill dot o r g